0: this uh, this second uh, lecture of the End of Law series. Uh, And today we are very privileged and honored to have Professor Bruce Rosenstock here, who will talk about Leviticus, Bataille, and uh, black studies, the flesh of one's own, flesh of flesh. And Professor Rosenstock, Rosenstock has written numerous articles and books on ancient philosophy and modern philosophy, and especially is working on the interconnection between religion and philosophy. And that's what he will do today also. And recently published his beautiful book on Oscar Goldberg, Transfinite Life, Oscar Goldberg and the Vitalist Imagination. And now he's working on a book on Hegel, interpretations of Hegel, um, in relation to the hol- Holocaust, so Hegel and the Holocaust. And with this very short introduction, I think it's time to begin. So thank you very much, Bruce, for being in.
1: Thank you, Martin, and thank you for inviting me. And thank you to Lund and Gothenburg Universities and the uh, School of Theology and Religious Studies for their support and invitation. I'm really honored to be here and thank you all for joining this um, this event. So in the following presentation I hope to show how the Bible's framing of the flesh, the theme of the flesh within the context of kinship and its violation through incest forms the basis for the binarism of holy flesh and cursed flesh, a binarism which is further intensified in the incest legislation of the medieval church In modernity, pure flesh and satanic flesh is mapped onto the binarism of the white slave master's family and the black slave's kinlessness, her inability to form a family by virtue of her flesh. I'll argue that the overcoming of this binarism requires a reimagination of the Bible's innovative and even revolutionary concept of the sacrality of a people's kinship flesh, I will further argue that the path towards this reimagination leads through Bataille and Black Studies. The theme of the flesh in the Bible, the theme of the holy flesh in the Bible, is given its fullest expression in Leviticus 18 through 20, which are the central chapters of what has become known as the Holiness Code. In Leviticus 19 2, the author referred to as H, responsible for the stratum of Leviticus, reports the words of Yahweh to Moses, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. The key point here is that the command to be holy is directed to, quote, all the congregation. The Holiness Code emerges out of a Reformist Holiness school within the wider priestly community over a number of generations in the 8th century BCE. The Holiness School seeks to promulgate a new interpretation of what it means for Israel to be a goy kadosh, a holy people. According to Jacob Milgram, the scholar who is most responsible for understanding today of the Holiness Code and its foundation uh, for future scholarship, the Holiness Code, quote, concerned itself with the people at large, end quote. Its goals, he argues, its goal, he argues, was, quote, revolutionary, the creation of an egalitarian society, where, quote, everyone has access to the holy, end quote. Now at the center of the Holiness Code in Leviticus are three chapters, the first, chapter 18, and the third, chapter 20, are concerned in large part with illicit sexual relations between a man and what the H author calls the flesh of his flesh, Sha'ar Bissaro, a phrase denoting what we would call consanguineous or blood kinship. The phrase is used for the action of, the phrase that is used for the action of engaging in illicit sexual relations with the flesh of one's flesh is to quote, reveal the nakedness. Now that phrase is never used in Leviticus for any other kind of sexual intercourse, whether licit or illicit, including adultery or rape, with only one exception, and that is intercourse with one's own menstruating wife, or with a menstruant more generally. With the exception of intercourse with a menstruant, we can talk about what, about, and we can talk about that exception if we want in the question period. All the other occurrences of the phrase to reveal nakedness in Leviticus are used for illicit sex with close consanguineous kin. Finally, the violation of revealing the nakedness of the flesh of one's flesh is said to be the reason that the Canaanites are about to be, quote, vomited out of the land into which the Israelites are about to enter. So, read in conjunction with the curse of Noah on Ham's son Canaan, which is a curse that I'll talk about later, um, which happens obviously in the book Genesis, we see how the H author of Leviticus 18-20, through, 18 through 20, or someone working within that priestly school, has shaped the narrative of Genesis, where we see uh, Noah, Ham reveals the nakedness of his father, and Ham's son, Canaan, is the one who's cursed for this has shaped the narrative of Genesis to show how the sin of the father has been passed on to the descendant, to his descendants. Now, I mentioned that the phrase flesh of one's flesh refers to close consanguineous kin, but this needs further qualification. The phrase does not include only those persons who we today would judge to be proximate consanguineous kin, namely father, mother, and siblings, before explaining just who is the flesh of one's flesh, I should explain that the Levitical prohibitions assume that both parties are engaged in voluntary sexual relations, and obviously rape falls under its own prohibition. In fact, the, mer- the prohibitions are directed not so much as at one-off sexual encounters, but rather marrying the flesh of one's flesh, or placing the female partner in the status of a legal concubine. Who then is included in the flesh of one's flesh? The list of prohibited partners begins in Leviticus 18, uh, 6 through 11, listing one's mother, stepmother, half-sister, granddaughter, and stepsister. Something may seem out of place to us in this list of what I have called consanguineous kin. In what way is a stepmother or a stepsister, but let's focus on the stepmother for the moment, a blood relative? So the H author, as if expecting this very question, explains why she is included. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not reveal, for it is the nakedness of your father. That's 18.8. The explanation that a forbidden partner, not normally considered consanguineous kin, shares the nakedness of another, one's father, who is consanguineous kin, is also found in the case of, for example, the brother's wife. Thus, tabooed relations are not merely listed, but an explanation for the taboo is provided. This explanation covers both blood and what we would call affine or in-law prohibited partners. The basis of the explanation for the prohibition in every instance is that a husband and his wife have a single nakedness. And therefore, revealing the nakedness of one is to reveal the nakedness of the other. A husband and wife has, in a sense, become one flesh. The oneness of flesh continues even if the husband dies. One stepmother may, of course, remarry, but her flesh has become permanently linked to her former husband and is out of bounds to her stepson. Now, the idea that a husband and wife are transformed into one flesh when they marry may seem strange to us today, but it is not something that should surprise a reader of the Bible, or in fact, a student of medieval canon law. In fact, the idea that a husband and wife constitute or create one flesh is, we might say, the Bible's very definition of how human sexuality, in contrast to animal sexuality, works. In the second chapter of Genesis, the first man says to the first woman, the word for woman and wife are identical in biblical Hebrew, ish and isha are both man and... Man and woman, but also husband and wife. When Yahweh brings her to him after removing her from his side, or perhaps less accurately from his rib, this one, he says, this time is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called Isha, woman, or wife, because she was taken from man, Ish, or husband, for this reason, and for this reason, a man, Ish, will leave his mother and his father cleave and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The translation is mine in this case. The idea behind this verse is that humans have the agency to create a new one flesh, either through reproduction, again, each child is the one flesh that her mother and father in their conjunction will create, or through a deliberate act that binds a man and a woman together in a socially recognized union as husband and wife. In both ways, in reproduction and in marriage, a new human oneness of flesh is formed that had not previously existed. In the case of marriage, however, the new one flesh comes into being primarily as a voluntary and deliberate process within the um, voluntary performance, rather, whereas the new one flesh of the child emerges after an invisible gestational process within the body of the mother. Despite the fact that creating the child's new one flesh seems to be a simple matter of biology and sexual desire, the Bible judges that humans do much more than follow the path laid down for them by their animal flesh when they form a new one flesh with their bodies. First of all, there's a need to deliberately separate oneself from one's natal family. A man shall leave his mother and his father. Second, there's a need to cleave together with one's partner. A verb that carries a connotation in Hebrew of consciously directed, of a consciously directed act with an intended permanence or endurance of bonding. So that by these two intentional acts, leaving and cleaving, the two partners create, recreate the image of God in their new one flesh, whether as a conjugal pair or with a child who may arise from that bonding. So the new image of God is radically new. That is, it is absolutely unique in just the way that God is absolutely unique. I want to underline the point that kinship creation in the one flesh of mother, father, and child is the foundation of the Bible's theopolitics of the holiness of human flesh. Human kinship is understood to be based upon an intentional bonding of two bodies from different families through which reproduction is brought out of the realm of species reproduction and into the realm what Hebrew, in Hebrew, is called a min, according to their kind, which is not how the Bible speaks of what the two first humans do, Um, and into the realm of augmenting, as one biblical scholar, Yair Lorberbaum, has put it, augmenting the image of God. So kinship is always already holy always, already, the augmentation of the image of God. But the question is whether it is known to be so. The Holiness Code reveals Yahweh's holiness to the people. I, Yahweh, your God, and holy, and requires of Israel that it add one further aspect of intentionality to the augmentation process, which is shared by all humans, of constantly recreating new kinship oneness of flesh. Israel shall know itself as enacting Yahweh's holiness in its flesh viewed within the overarching framework provided by the narrative of the creation of the human in the opening genesis in the opening chapters of genesis Israel's holiness as manifested in its kinship flesh is portrayed as the reunification of the division within human flesh that is created when Yahweh took the woman from the man not only do the opening chapters of the book of genesis provide uh, the theological and narrative background for this conception of holiness, but the entire book of Genesis returns again and again to the idea that incest, revealing the nakedness of the flesh, is the supreme assault against Yahweh's final creation, the human being. This conception of incest is, as, in a sense, an act of war against Yahweh's created order, sets the background for the placement of the incest prohibitions at the center of Leviticus's Holiness Code. And let me explain now how incest figures, for the H author at least, as the supreme theopolitical crime. Let us consider again the fact that incest is described as revealing the nakedness of the flesh of one's flesh. It's an act that occurs within the kinship flesh, where the image of God is uniquely embodied. It splits apart the unity of the kinship flesh and exposes or reveals the nakedness of the male and the female as separate beings, rupturing the image of God, tearing it asunder from within. Incest violates the enfleshment of God upon the earth. Let me now propose this formulation as the way to capture how the H author understands the theopolitical threat of incest. In place of augmenting the image of God in the world, incest represents the attempt to turn reproduction into the numerical multiplication of a fleshly sameness rather than a fleshly newness. Now, at the end of his Elementary Structures of Kinship, Claude Lévi-Strauss describes Golden Age myths in which humans live without the necessity of entering into marriage, a time that might be represented either as a time before the creation of the woman which is in the case of the theogony and Greek mythology, or a time when women as sexual partners remained within the native natal family, which is an image of a uh, golden age in which incest as was the mode of reproduction. In the very last line of the book, Levi-Strauss stresses, says, that such golden age myths, set in either a, quote, unattainable past or a distant utopian future, divide um, divine and human condition, uh, the, 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 the human condition and its present condition that is eternally denied to social man of a world in which one might keep to oneself. So in that, in these golden age myths, we see a world in which one might keep to oneself. And those last three words are in italics and they're the final words of the book, um, the elementary structures of kinship. A world without marriage is a world that in the Golden Age myths is lost to humans, a world of life in greater proximity to that of the gods. So I'm arguing that the theopolitical um, threat of incest for the H author has its origin in this mythic desire to live like the gods. For the H author, the theopolitics of holy Israel stands in radical opposition to the theopolitics of incest or mythic incest which the H author represents as the theopolitics of other peoples, and in particular, Egypt and Canaan. But the H author does not, like the myths of the Golden Age, judge the human condition to be one where humans no longer live like the gods. Most Golden Age myths express the fall or collapse from this case, from this time when one kept to oneself. But rather, precisely because they marry, and from the newness of kinship one flesh humans are indeed like god knowing good and evil and that's of course a quotation from genesis 3 if time permitted i would show how the threat of incest is a way for humans to appropriate for themselves the power of the flesh to reproduce the image of god how this is connected to the quote corruption of the flesh in the pre-diluvian narrative it is related obviously to ham's violation of his father's flesh and also I will, I would be able to argue, I hope persuasively, to the Tower of Babel episode. But I'll restrict myself now to the serpent in the garden narrative with some additional, additional comments about the incest and how, about incest in its relation to the figure of Jacob, the progenitor of the children of Israel. Now, as we all know, the serpent in the garden is the agent through whom the man and the woman become aware of themselves as their, as being naked. He is, as we might say, the arch-revealer of nakedness. The word that is translated as subtle or clever to describe the serpent in Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, that's the King James Version, is homonymous with the word for naked, as it appears in the immediately preceding verse to describe the man and the woman. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. That's two twenty five. The word subtle is arum, a singular adjectival form, and the word naked in the prior verse is arumim, a plural adjectival form of a different lexeme, a different lexical entry in the, in the, in the uh, dictionary, arum. But in its plural form, it sounds exactly like the singular adjective. The Bible author is clearly drawing our attention to something that brings subtlety and nakedness together. In in the case of the serpent, we're told that he is the most subtle of animals. So is there a way in which he might also be described as the most naked of animals? Although they do not actually connect it with the serpent's being the most naked, all commentators agree that the symbolic valence of the serpent has something to do with the fact that the snake sheds its skin. The symbolism of skin shedding is usually connected with immortal life, and I think that the Bible writer does in fact have that in mind. But he's also drawing skin shedding into relation with the theme of nakedness and its revelation. In other words, the serpent is the symbol of both immortality and incest. So the serpent has two nakednesses, one that conceals the other. That is why he is most naked. But how does this, if you want to use the arum in his, in that is relating to the previous arumim, naked, he's most naked, he's most subtle. But how does most nakedness relate to most subtle? The outermost uh, nakedness of the serpent is a deceptive cover for his innermost nakedness. The serpent not only dissimulates his real nakedness under the appearance of nakedness, he also dissimulates in his speech. His words to the woman conceal a deeper truth under a surface meaning that is also true. For example, that the fruit does not bring death on the day that it is eaten, but rather it brings mortality, and that the eating of the fruit makes one, quote, like God, who knows good and evil. Now that is the deeper meaning of the phrase um, In that he quotes, that the knowledge of good and evil is desirable because it is a possession that is apparently jealously guarded by Yahweh. But what tempted the woman was probably not the acquisition of the jealously guarded knowledge, But what she heard in the surface meaning of what the serpent said, that the fruit will make them like gods who know good and evil. Both like God and like gods are possible translation of what the serpent has said. But the plural form of the word used elsewhere, Elohim, to refer to God, Yahweh, would to the first woman's naive ear, this is the first time she's ever heard that word, sound like what it is, a plural noun, gods. I'm obviously not assuming that there was such a woman. We're talking about what I believe the the narrator wants us as readers to perceive as an ambiguity within the text. So I believe that the reader is meant to hear the word as the first woman might have heard it, while also hearing it in its deeper meaning, as a reference to the one God, the God of the Bible. So this interpretation allows us to begin to understand what might be at stake in the Bible's representation of incest as the supreme violation of the oneness of human flesh. It is driven by the human desire to become like gods. How can incest be imagined to lift humans into the realm of the gods? Well, I quoted Levi-Strauss earlier about the myths of the Golden Age as representations of a lost time when humans did not need to enter into marriage-exchange relations with other families in order to create the newness of kinship flesh because, in effect, they were immortal. Levi-Strauss simply describes such myths as fantasies of a time when, quote, the law of exchange could be evaded, that one could gain without losing, enjoy without sharing, end quote. So that is indeed an infantile fantasy, one that is clearly connected to, quote, to what I would describe instead of keeping to oneself, but keeping the mother to oneself. But this is not the connection that links the serpent to incest here. Incest in the Bible writer's imagination, if it is the atrial author, is not primarily about overcoming the father's law and recovering an infantile oneness with the mother, but is rather a theopolitical threat to the holiness of Israel. The violation of kinship flesh is not understood within the context of the individual's psychosexual maturation, but the history of humanity's increasing distance from Yahweh. Incest is the desire of keeping kinship flesh to oneself in order first to live like gods in order or in greater proximity to the gods, and second, to keep the power over life and death to oneself, that is to say the sovereign power of the king, who is usually the one who is permitted to live like the gods, and in fact often ritually enacts or lives a life of incest, as in the case of the pharaohs, as you know, brother-sister. As one social class at the top of a hierarchic pyramid lifts itself closer to the gods, the base is consigned to a life like that of domesticated animals. The theopolitics of the H author opposes this mythopolitical order, but the H author also sees incest in its theopolitical setting as an inward threat to Israel's own holiness since it is coeval with the origin of human sexuality as such. So that takes us back to the serpent. The serpent, I'm arguing, symbolizes the self-rejuvenating power of the flesh. And incest, as sexual intercourse within the flesh of one's flesh, seeks to keep the flesh intact and rejuvenated from within. And that's the threat posed by the nakedness that is most subtle. Rather than seeing one's... Doubled nakedness as husband and wife. We talked about it as having one flesh, but two nakednesses, um, each one separately, but the nakedness of one is the nakedness of the other. Rather than seeing one's doubled nakedness as husband and wife as the enfleshment of the image of God, and therefore as sacred, the subtlety of the way that the serpent sees flesh transforms the nakedness of one's sexual partner into an instrument of self-rejuvenation, of overcoming mortality. And if the emphasis falls on self in self-rejuvenation, then this way of viewing the other's nakedness will see in the flesh that is most like one's own flesh, the flesh of one's own flesh, the greatest possibility for self-rejuvenation. This is the basis of the Bible's logic of incest, as the violation of the image of God and flesh within kinship. To put it in the terms that Levi-Strauss uses, by keeping kinship flesh to oneself, incest is imagined to be a way to overcome one's separation from the divine world and to live like gods with a power that rivals that of Yahweh rather than augments. So the serpent is cursed by Yahweh and will no longer face the nakedness of humans, but will go on his belly. His threat is against the heel of the woman. As the curse says, the threat of an animal that attacks from behind and hides itself in the grass. There is another biblical figure who is also associated with the heel, the duplicitous use of skins and also incest. And that figure is Jacob, whose very name means heel grabber and is named for his attempt to restrain his twin brother Esau as he struggled to be the first from the womb. Jacob and his mother, Rachel, possessed the cunning of the serpent. He deceives his father Isaac by placing skin over his own skin in order to appear to Isaac under the guise of Esau. Jacob repeats the serpent's trick of deceptive doubleness of skin and shares a name related to the serpent's heel-attacking nature. He also commits incest, according to Leviticus 18. The final prohibition in Leviticus 18 is against the marrying of two sisters although the Bible goes to great lengths to exculpate him and to lay the blame completely on Laban, his uncle. His uncle tricks him into taking the older sister, Leah, before he can marry the younger sister, whom he truly loves, Rachel. But Jacob's serpentine, uh, not Rachel, Um, yes, Rachel. So Rachel, yeah, Jacob, mother, I'm getting a little confused. Never mind. Jacob's serpentine subtlety, um triumphs over leban's precise over leban precisely by the application of one of animal husbandry's most fundamental tools namely incest jacob takes the speckled and spotted cattle and goats and the brown sheep from Laban's herds places the strongest among them near one another when they were ready to conceive and did this again and again using a tool of sympathetic magic as we're told wooden branches whose bark was peeled to imitate the skin coloration of the mating animals, but incestuous mating for recessive, as we would call them, coloration traits, is exactly the reality behind this sympathetic magic. I will not press the part, but the verb that is used to describe the conception by the animals that took place in this process is based on the very same root that is found in the name cham. So the verb is yacham. So, George Bataille. We're now ready to turn to Bataille. In nearly a point-for-point correspondence, Bataille aligns himself with everything that the Bible, the Bible's theopolitics of holy kinship flesh, seems to oppose. Israel's holiness is attained through its knowledge of Yahweh and Yahweh's name, but for Bataille, the sacred is the domain of non-knowledge, the renunciation of every attempt to speak or name the power that wells up in all living things and that swallows them into itself at their death. Non-knowledge is revealed in the act of sacrifice when life and death coincide. Sacrificial non-knowledge stands directly opposed to God's self-revelation. And I quote Bataille, God is the lamb substituted for Isaac. Further on, there is naked sacrifice without Isaac. The sacrifice is madness, the renunciation of all knowledge, the fall into the void, and nothing, neither in the fall nor in the void, is revealed. For the revelation of the void is but a means of falling further into absence. Far from doubled nakedness of kinship flesh revealing the image of God, non-knowledge bears, uh, lays bare as he puts it, a nudity which puts one into ecstasy. And an anguish leads to the surrender of the knowing subject's possession of the object, in quotes, and its absurd rush of ipse, of the self itself, wanting to become everything. Bataille, end quote. Bataille seems to be playing on the biblical use of no, to refer to sexual union, and his non-knowledge is intended to capture the rapturous experience of the loss of selfhood, the loss of the ipse, and surrender to the ecstasy of union with the other. Now this inner experience, as he puts it, of ecstasy corresponds to the madness of sacrifice, where the animal, which is a substitute for the ipse, self, transitions from life into death. Dissolving its discrete individuality, Bataille calls it the discontinuous aspect of life, back into the unity of the life force, what he calls the continuous. So the non-knowledge of the self-sacrificing God is the ecstatic experience of the yielding of one's individuality over to the endless fall into the bottomless void, out of which all discontinuous things emerge, but only for a moment. It is not the spirit that, for, that the first verse of Genesis says hovers over the formless and void earth that is baptized God, but is rather the earth itself, the domain of darkness rather than that of light. The return to earth for discontinuous beings means death, but for the human there is the possibility of experiencing this return either in witnessing a sacrificial death and identifying with the victim or in the abandonment of selfhood in sexual ecstasy. Both are forms of the sacred that, as Bataille says, and he and these are his words, reveal the flesh. As we will see, Bataille has deliberately used a biblical phrase, the one I've been referring to constantly, to reveal the flesh. That, as I have discussed, refers to the incestuous transgression of the one flesh of the husband and the wife. His knowledge of the phrase, revealing the flesh, comes through the Vulgate translation of Leviticus and through its continuing usage in medieval Christian literature. Bataille explains how the flesh itself is the source of what he calls an extravagance that the incest taboo is meant to restrain. Quote Bataille now at length, Both the act of love and sacrifice reveal the flesh. Sacrifice replaces the ordered life of the animal with a blind convulsion of organs. So also with the erotic convulsion, it gives free reign to extravagant organs whose blind activity goes on beyond the considered will of the lovers. Their considered will is followed by the animal anxiety activity of these swollen organs. They are animated by a violence outside the control of reason, swollen to bursting point, and suddenly the heart rejoices to yield to the breaking of the storm. The urges of the flesh pass all bounds in the absence of the controlling will. Flesh is the extravagance within us set up against the laws of decency. Flesh is the born enemy of people haunted by Christian taboos. But if, as I believe, an indefinite and general taboo does exist, opposed to sexual liberty in ways depending on time and place, the flesh signifies a return to this threatening freedom. So that's the end of this long quote. A footnote at the very end of that sentence, the last one I read, uh, refers to an earlier chapter concerning taboos related to reproduction, where Bataille asks, is there anything more firmly rooted in us than the horror of incest? This universal horror of incest is the horror humans experience in the face of the violence that is the heart of all living things, he says, of violence that accompanies the extravagant creation of new life the, quote, swelling tumult continuously on the verge of explosion, end quote, but seems to the human imagination to be simply designed to proliferate infinite forms of exhaustion, dissolution, and death. The expenditure of life's resources is never-ending, because the proliferating organisms, after their strength is exhausted, quote, make room for, the fre- for fresh beings coming into the cycle with renewed vigor. End quote. For Bataille, all forms of the sacred, what the Bible calls holiness, provide access to the, quote, swelling tumult of the flesh that exists beneath or below the surface of decency. The sacred reveals the flesh's nakedness. In the Vulgate translation, by the way, of Leviticus, nakedness is rendered in either of two terms, with either of two terms, turpitudo or ignominia. So that's why he refers to the nakedness as uh, laws of decency, laws against revealing nakedness. The nakedness of the swollen organs that are outside the control of reason. So Bataille explains that the flesh as the site of sexual desire and, and the sheltering tissues surrounding the germ cells that hold the promise of new life, he calls this plethoric. The sexuality of animal, animal flesh pushes the non-human animal towards a violence that may end in death. Because, quote, no barrier is raised against it. In the case of animal sexual uh, intercourse, death is sometimes the result. But if such non-human animal survives the sexual encounter, the animal returns to what it is, to its discontinuous existence, as it was before the convulsion of its plethoric organs. But for humans, Bataille argues, restraint, uh, but humans restrain their sexuality with taboos that make possible Orderly social life, sexuality is not the occasion of a fight to the death with a rival, or per e, or perhaps even with the mating partner, because ordered social life, what he calls work, depends upon the suppression of the plethoric sexuality of animal flesh. The discontinuous existence of the members of society is never one of pre, is never one of a, a preconvulsive quietude like that of the animals. Quote, In human life, Bataille states, sexual violence causes a wound that rarely heals of its own accord. It has to be closed and will not remain closed without constant attention based on anguish. End quote. The horror of incest is ultimately the horror of a violence within the flesh that is the sign of plethoric life and the death of the discontinuous self. To avoid death, the individual submits to laws of decency that protect the discontinuous self from the threat of uninhibited sexual violence. The the benefit that accrues to the individual depends upon the creation of a social order in which the violation of these laws is sanctioned and hedged about with religious awe, punished I should say. Taboos about sexuality which is associated with violence and death thus raise the human beyond the level of other animals who do either who either die after their sex act or return to an anguish-free quietude of discontinuous existence. Bataille contrasts his version of of transcending animality through the transgressive ecstasy of the sexual plethora with the life and death risk that produce the master and the slave in Hegel's Phenomenology of the Spirit. The master and the slave emerge after a mortal combat where each party seeks to gain the recognition from the other, but his life is worth more than that of an animal, that his life is a human life. The master emerges when the slave yields and accepts as his condition for survival that he will live henceforth in servitude. But the master's desired recognition of his humanity is now undone because the slave has lost his status as an equal in combat. And the recognition of one's humanity from a slave whose humanity one does not recognize, the master does not recognize, cannot supply what the master desires. The master enjoys whatever the work of the slave produces. This is all Hegel, but this is not different from the life of an animal fundamental. In contrast, the slave lives in fear for his life, but learns that death can be indefinitely postponed through work. Working allows the slave to recognize himself, as a human who transforms the natural world in a way that is distinct from other animals, through tools and as a means for the deferral of death, opening a relation to the future that other animals do not possess. Now, Bataille's fundamental contrast is between, on the one hand, the Hegelian slave's deferral of death through the amortized expenditure of his energies in productive economic work, and what Bataille says is truly the liberative emancipatory activity, the slave's extravagant expenditure of all of his energies in an ecstatic self-sacrifice that destroys his servility and robs the master of his source of enjoyment. I don't have time to talk about a play that he analyzes called uh, Numantia by Cervantes that was performed in Paris and also in um, Spain during the um, the, the war in Spain, the civil war in Spain, a play in which the citizens of Numantia kill themselves and kill their children in an act that um, refuses to allow themselves to be subjected to slavery by the Romans. And he speaks about this as um, just as the Romans commanded by the implacable authority of a leader are associated with the glory of the sun, In the same way, the Numantines, without a leader, he writes, without a head, are located in the region of the night and of the earth, in the region haunted by the phantoms of the tragedy mother. So that's how he ends his discussion of the play, Numantia. He also says that death is, quote, the fundamental object of the communal activity of men and not food or the production of the means of production. So that's his attempt to form a different emancipatory narrative for uh, than that of Hegel, who sees emancipation for slaves in their work. And the question is, how do we reach this radical point of division between where we saw the Bible's emphasis upon life-giving as the sacred act, through which the image of God is augmented, and we now turn to um, Bataille, and we see the death is the communal act through which humans reach the sacred. And the answer is Christianity, and Bataille himself offers that answer. Bataille points to the sacralization of the purity of love, binding all the members of the Church as one body, the mystical body of Christ, as having replaced the sexual, or trying to replace, the power of the sexual plethora, the dissolution of discontinuous organic identity within that upwelling and swelling source of life that also demands death. But there's more than simply this attempt to replace the continuity of the sexual plethora with the continuity of the body of Christ. It is rather the case that the, um, by, that the sexual plethora's Replacement by the body of Christ is also seen as the complete elimination of incest from within the Christian church. One scholar talking about the rise of canon laws, incest legislation, um, has described it as an obsession with incest. By the time of the 12th century, there were seven degrees of consanguinity, consanguinity that were forbidden on either the mother's or the father's side. Incest, as one historian calls, was, was an obsession. Um, the 13th century Song of Roland describes Roland as the son of Charlemagne and his sister. The Arthurian legend makes Mordred the child of Arthur's brother-sister, unwitting union. Peter Damien in the 12th century reflects this most clearly. He says that a union with a partner beyond the seven degrees, within the seven degrees of consanguinity is a submission to what he calls the Jewish carnality and the Antichrist, who will attempt to overthrow the church by a return to Jewish law, in which first cousin marriage is not only permitted, but not infrequent. Damien identifies some of the more lenient views as he quotes serpents, and expresses his hope that the arguments that can defeat the poison of carnal ingenuity, alluding to the most subtle serpent in the garden. And he concludes... May the old serpent forbear from spewing forth his poisonous doctrine that the Church of Christ may be able to, in the future, live intact in the splendor of her purity. So we should recall that in Latin for incestus, incestus is based upon the uh, neg- negation of the adjective for pure castus. So Bataille's conception of the sacrality of sexual plethora of flesh is responding, we most might simply say, to Peter Damien. Access to the sacred power of the sexual plethora requires plunging into the realm of the impure. In a late novel he writes called My Mother, he describes incest, the narrator does, with his mother as a form of revelation of God. And now I'd like to come to the conclusion and talk about black studies. I wish I had more time, I'll spend as much as I possibly can to explore this text with you. And it's the text of Sylvia, um, I'm sorry, uh the the text by um Hortense Spillers, not Sylvia Winter, I was thinking mo- for a moment, but Hortense Spillers called Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American grammar book. <clears throat> um, Spiller's essay undertakes the critical work of demythologization of the matriarchal, quote, Negro family, tracing the contingent historical genealogy of the representation of the American, of African-American kinship structure, especially as it had been presented in the 1965 Moynihan Report, originally called The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. Spiller's acknowledges her methodological debt to Roland Barthes. Who in his 1957 mythologies, in one example after another, shows how the French cultural imaginary creates the impression that its representative symbols are as natural and enduring as its soil and its mountains, as if these were in fact also untouched by artifice. Spiller's turns her demythologizing lens on American representative figurations of the black female, appearing under a series of different names, peaches, brown sugar, Sapphire, and other appellations from the quote National Treasury of Rhetorical Wealth. These are what he, what she calls confounded identities of the black matriarch, the figure who has filled in for the missing father in the Negro family, another mythic appellation that is given the stamp of a historical truth in the sociological analysis of the Moynihan report. The white family and the Negro family, Spillers explains, appear in the report with, quote, neither past nor future as tribal currents moving out of time, end quote. The white family is organized around the apparently natural order of paternal property rights and inheritance rights of the legitimate male heir, whereas the Negro family finds itself excluded from the American promise of wealth accumulation precisely because of its pathological family structure, its matriarchy. This is the myth, whose historical genealogy Spillers will unveil, tracing it back to the, quote, theft of the body that inaugurates the socio-political order of the New World. The myth of the pathology of black kinship has its origins in this theft, and the myth serves both to occlude and to continue to perpetuate its effects. The black kinship group, as if it were a tribal current moving out of time, is excluded from American wealth accumulation because it has been and remains a commodity through which wealth is produced and amassed. Her essay reveals how the theft of the body placed African captives in a space where the kinship network into which they had been born was ruptured and replaced with a form of existence in which the very possibility of kinship itself was effaced, or better put, The effort was made to to efface this possibility. The effacement of the possibility or potentiality for kinship that Spillers has in mind does not involve the sterilization of the captive slave bodies, although that too was practiced against black flesh, or the imposition of labor designed to exhaust and to kill the captives in time for the next arrival of a fresh infusion of captive bodies, although that too was practiced against black flesh. What Spillers has in mind is the breeding program of chattel slavery in the New World's sugar, tobacco, and cotton plantations. The effacement of the potentiality for kinship of captive Africans requires that they be stripped of their identities as they receive them from their parents, their proper names, and their family names. Even their gendered differences as, as once they may have been parsed as a mother or as a father or as a son or as a daughter, are entirely effaced. In place of these gendered identities within their prior kinship relations, the captives are hauled away and loaded into cargo ships, with the only gender difference being the one of size assigned to the space in the hold in which they will be chained for the bulk of their months-long journey. This is what she calls an oceanic condition of gender undifferentiation. Once the captives arrive in the new world, a new and more stable, as it were, set of practices are put into place by the owners of the black slaves in order to maintain them in a condition of kinlessness, a term that Spillers adopts from the anthropologist Claude Mayassou. Mayesoux's study of slavery was the basis for the pathbreaking study by Orlando Patterson, Slavery and Social Death*. Patterson argued that from antiquity forward, the central, quote, symbolic instrument used to maintain the power of the master over the enslaved was, quote, natal alienation, the transformation of the slave into what he calls a genealogical isolate. In effect, the slave was imagined to be living in a state of communal, commuted, a commuted death sentence, but as a reborn, but kinless body. The internal slave trade, where slaves were reared and bred, depends upon asserting property rights over the larger patriarchal order of the plantation society over the slave's kinless body and making it a profitable source for labor. In the case of the female, this was to use the female's motherhood function as a function of gestation and some limited measure of infant nurturance and was viewed simply as a part of the labor of the female slave. A child's father may have been any number of male slaves, or indeed it may have been the master of the plantation or one of the master's slaves, or one of the master's own sons, or perhaps another kin. The slave child was therefore papa's maybe, as the title puts it, but was always mama's baby. The female slave's relationship to a child was therefore the point where kinship might have been recreated, and it therefore was the object of deliberate facing with the removal of the child from the mother even during the child's infancy as Frederick Douglass is quoted by Spillers as saying, in order to blunt and destroy the natural affection of the mother for the child. The attempt to efface all kinship ties from the enslaved bodies, denying to motherhood and fatherhood any form of recognition or purchase an affective social or legal reality, produced a situation in southern slave plantations that Spillers considers to be a form of pansexual or ungendered sexuality that is, quote, neuter-bound inasmuch as it represents an open vulnerability to a gigantic sexualized repertoire that may be alternatively alternately expressed as male-female. I know that we're coming to a point where, unfortunately, I should bring everything to a conclusion, and I shall do so, and let me bring it then to a conclusion. Spillers ends her essay on the on the attempt to destroy the kinship-creating flesh of the enslaved African peoples, especially the attempt to efface kinship from the flesh of the enslaved female, with a positive note in her in the failure of slaveocracy to produce a kinless slave class, the power of the flesh, and she distinguishes the flesh as the site. She talks of it as the site of motherhood and fatherhood as kinship potentialities, the power of the flesh was revealed. In particular, the power of the flesh of the woman was revealed. Spiller suggests that a new kinship flesh, new kinship order emerged out of the experiment of driving motherhood and fatherhood as potentials within black flesh out of existence. Fatherhood, the papas maybe, was the more fragile possibility within black flesh, but also the more threatening if it found expression in its role of defending one's family from violent aggression. The assault upon black kinship flesh, therefore, was directed at the link between the enslaved woman and her child, especially her male child. Neither incest, which was predominantly the case throughout the southern plantations, nor the, rem- and the, nor the removal and sale of the child, could efface the power of the black woman, drawing upon the kinship potential of human flesh to give birth to new forms of motherhood, Calling into being new expressions of fatherhood, the mother, but especially new forms of brotherhood and sisterhood. Quote, the African American woman, the mother, the daughter becomes historically the powerful and shadowy evocation of a cultural synthesis long evaporated, the law of the mother. So she's speaking about the emergence once again of a matriarchal kinship relationship. The, the black female slave denies that any power can efface her mother right. But also she lays claims, lay claim to what in a patriarchal culture might appear to be illegitimate. The black male has, as a black male, uniquely experienced, and I quote her, who the female, um, who the female is within itself. Insofar as she, like all mothers, quote, bears the life against the could be fateful gamble. But in the specific case of the black female, Undertakes a gamble of, quote, pulverization and murder, including her own. Far from reasserting his claim to patriarchal authority, the black male is in a position to help bring a new form of kinship into being out of his own flesh's kinship potentiality. She writes, It is the heritage of the mother that the African American male must regain as an aspect of his own personhood. The power of, yes, to the female within. So I want to conclude with a reflection on the last line of Spiller's essay, a reflection that will return us to the Bible. Quote, she writes, actually claiming the monstrosity of a female with a potential to name, which her culture imposes in blindness. Sapphire might rewrite, after all, a radically different text for female empowerment. Now I hear in reference to monstrosity first an allusion to the Latin root monstrare found in the word monstrance, the vessel containing the host that is displayed before the gathered church. The female potential to name, as Stiller's puts it, I hear as a way to claim the power granted by Yahweh to Adam to name the other animals, a power he uses only once again in naming his wife Eve. If the host in the monstrance is the flesh of the new Adam, Christ, then the black woman, the mother through whom black life finds its renewal, is a new Eve, whom Adam named because she is, quote, the mother of all the living. The new Eve is Sapphire, but she is also carrying the names of that once were used to overwrite her flesh's power to create kinship anew. If her power of naming will serve as the genesis, of a radically different text for female empowerment, then it will be the one, will be one that also allows men to say yes to the female within. If, as I've suggested, the H authorship of the Bible proposed a revolutionary and egalitarian reconceptualization of human kinship flesh as quote, male and female created in the image of God, then perhaps we may say that the text that Spiller's envisioned will sing the glory within the flesh that rises up in affirmation of life against man's attempt to brand the flesh with what she calls the hieroglyphics of man's own image. Thank you.